You're listening to the Historians Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. We welcome Gary Slaughter to the program. How you doing, Gary? I'm just fine, ready to go. Gary Slaughter is author of the memoir, Sea Stories. Sea Stories, a memoir of a naval officer, which he was from 1956 through 1967. He also has another literary claim to fame, and we'll uh, talk with him about that in a few minutes. The book uh, Sea Stories is published by Fletcher House. It came out this year. I do want to start with what I see as the most you know, exciting or maybe nerve-wracking part of your uh, career in the U.S. Navy, and that was uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Uh, that's when you were serving on board the anti-submarine destroyer USS Coney. Can you kind of uh, set the stage uh, for us on, on that? What was the Coney doing during the Cuban Missile Crisis? Well, the, the Coney <coughs> was a one part of one of four task groups <clears throat> that were dispatched to intercept four Russian submarines that we knew were coming to Cuba. Uh, this was after uh, Khrushchev decided that uh, he would uh, arm Cuba with missiles and with mm-hmm. uh, submarines and so forth. And we were uh, we knew they were coming. We had a, an excellent method of detecting them that was top secret at the time called SOSIS. It was a, a series, a string of hydrophones, uh, very sophisticated uh, listening devices, which en- enabled us to track every ship that was coming down the uh, Atlantic Ocean toward Cuba from Newfoundland to the Caribbean. Mm. So we were positioned to intercept one of the four uh, diesel uh, electric uh, submarines uh, in this case it was the b-59 and so we were standing in station with uh, on the ready and we detected a sonar contact which was the b-59 and uh, we spent the next uh, two hours trying to force that ship by pounding it with our sonar very powerful sonar uh, and to try to get it to surface Mm. And, and that I thought that was uh, fascinating. I mean, you you used you made a lot of noise. I mean, what did that do to the submarine? Well, it it would be if you were inside a barrel, and I came up uh, to that barrel with a sledgehammer and hit on the sides of that barrel. That's what those uh, submariners were suffering from—a huge pounding noise from our sonar dome, a huge sonar dome beneath our bow. That was actually a, a weapon that we employed among several other weapons, including torpedoes and rockets and and, uh, and depth charges and all kinds of other things that we could use to destroy destroyers. But this was the, the weapon we used to convince them to come to the surface. And, uh, and, it, and it worked after, after about two hours. But I should say that they were uh, in very bad shape by the time they reached us. These submarines were designed to work in Arctic waters, and they did not know what effect that would have on them, or I guess they, they should have known, but they didn't know. When they got down in the Sargasso Sea and in the southern Atlantic waters, that the water temperature rose to such a point that the temperatures inside the submarines rose to 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Wow. And this 
this strain on their uh, air conditioning system actually caused them the air conditioning system to break down. And because they were underwater for so long, they 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 were on diesel. I mean, excuse me, they were on battery, and their battery level uh, charge got so low that they were also suffering from battery fumes uh, seeping out of their batteries, and they were in bad bad shape by the time they decided some at nine o'clock that evening. We we detected them about five o'clock in the afternoon. And they, they, they gave up the ghost and came up to the surface. Hmm. And um, this has all come out, I guess, in more recent years because this material has been uh, declassified. But when, when the uh, submarine came to the surface, you were the uh, officer on board the ship who had the task of communicating with the captain? Yes, that's right. I... Uh... The summer before, and, and by the way, when I when all this occurred, I was a 22 year 22 year old ensign, so it wasn't like I was an experienced uh, naval officer mm-hmm. by any stretch. Uh, I'd only been in the navy uh, about 12 months at that time, and uh, anyway, uh, I had been sent to communication school where I used a method of uh, employing the Cyrillic, uh, that's the Russian alphabet transliteration table to English and then the international signal book and Morse code and flashing light to be able to communicate with the Russians and they did the same thing back with us so we could talk to each other ah. even though we spoke different languages. So I mean you're flashing lights to communicate and they, so is the the captain of the submarine. That's correct. And that's And that's how it goes. And the, the, as you describe it and I, and I gather from reading in your book that uh, the, the captain was not very happy. I mean, they, 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 you know, nothing else with all that difficulty they were having with the submarine. Well, he he was under great stress. And uh, as a matter of fact, when we, uh, I should backtrack and say that we sent out, we knew these uh, submarines were coming, and we sent out what was known as a NOTAM, a Notice to All Mariners, and we had this NOTAM delivered by our embassy in Moscow directly to the Russians. And the, the uh, NOTAM spelled out uh, our procedure for having submarines come to the surface, and it involved two things. First, we dropped five practice depth charges, and that was to order the submarine to the surface. And we also communicated using an underwater radio that we had called Gertrude, uh, the code uh, IDCA, which meant uh, it was the international code for come to the surface. So he, when, when he heard, the, he uh, did not receive the message from Moscow uh, that this, these procedures were in place, and so he became very uh, sure that the war had started and he was going to, to sink us. And he ordered his nuclear-tipped torpedo, and none of us knew he had a nuclear-tipped torpedo. And and he uh, was about to fire us on us when his uh, fellow crewmen convinced him not to, uh, because it would have meant the end of uh, <laughs> the B-59, our entire task force, and would likely likely have caused an exchange of nuclear weapons between the Soviet Union and America. Wow. And the reason for that is that that torpedo had a the power 
and the destructive uh, ability of the atom bombs that we dro- dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki during World War II. Wow. So this really was, the, if there was no other moment, this was the moment when the Cuban Missile Crisis could have led to war. And that's exactly why it was called Black Saturday. The, the other the other uh, incident that, called, that uh, happened on Black Saturday was that the Cubans shot down an American U-2 spy plane with a surface uh, Soviet surface-to-air missile, killing the the pilot, Rudolf, uh, Captain uh, Commander Rudolf Anderson. And technically, this was an act of war, but JFK was attempting to construct a ceasefire with Khrushchev by back-channel communications using Robert Kennedy. So he did not declare war, go to war with Cuba at that moment. He held off. But when this uh, episode with the B-59 occurred and the White House got wind of it, because we communicated with him, uh, we he almost went to war. Um, years later, by the way, I should I'm digressing a bit. Or how, can mm-hmm. you digress sure. forward? Yeah, sure. Digress forward, <laughs> or is that precess or something? Right. Anyway, I was uh, in business and traveling, and I happened to be uh, a member of the American Airlines Admirals Club, and I went into. Uh, the Admirals Club, late one evening, I was giving a lecture in, in, in Amsterdam, and I was flying home via Heathrow uh, on American Airlines. And there were only three of us in the uh, Admirals Club, uh, Robert McNamara, former Secretary of Defense, and uh, his wife and myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went over and introduced me myself to Robert McNamara, and he said, oh, yes, I recognize your name. And I wasn't surprised by this because he was well known for his uh, his unusually good memory. Hmm. And uh, he and this this was in the 80s, and this incident uh, had taken place 20 years before that. But anyway, he told me a story which I think your audience might enjoy hearing. He said that night, Black Saturday. He and this, uh, Dean Rusk left the White House, and he said to Rusk, Dean, I'm not sure that we'll see tomorrow morning. And Dean Rusk reluctantly agreed. The two shook hands, and they left in silence. Wow. That's the story he told me. And did you know, I mean, the people on the Coney know, or did the U.S. government know that the Soviet Union was equipping its submarines with nuclear torpedoes no that's that's the amazing part it was peter huchthausen who was the uh a naval intelligence officer who was acting as uh naval attache in moscow at the time the soviet union fell in 1992 who uh discovered through records that he uh, was able to get access through from his counterparts in the uh, soviet intelligence community that revealed that this uh, that these submarines were armed with these nuclear torpedoes, and he wrote that story in his book entitled October Fury, which was published on the 50th anniversary of the Cuban Missile Crisis in 2012. Mm. So I learned the secret uh, about the nuclear weapon on that submarine 50 years after it actually had occurred. Huh. So I mean, you knew what you were doing was dangerous. Uh, and important, but you didn't realize how dangerous and how important. 
Well, yes, I did. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, a, a normal torpedo could have sunk us. Uh, in fact, during the time early on in our conversation, and it was it was a very dark night that night, a shore-based P-2V Neptune uh, anti-submarine fixed-wing aircraft roared over the scene, and because he was trying to take photographs of us, and in, in my book I have a, that photograph of the Coney and the uh, B-59 side-by-side in the ocean, uh, Anyway, he was he draw he drew he dropped incendiary devices that exploded like huge firecrackers, bam, 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 and the light flashes were blinding, and this caused uh, Savitsky to wheel his boat to to starboard, open his torpedo tubes, and prepare to fire his nuclear torpedo at us. That was the scariest moment of the entire episode for me because. I was on the signal bridge, which was up high on the port side of our ship, and uh, those torpedo tubes were aimed right at me. Wow. And uh, I was uh, naturally <laughs> in a bit of a panic. Uh, but I, our captain, uh, Morgan, who is a very colorful guy, came up and, and ordered me to apologize immediately to Savitsky and tell him that, we had did did not approve of that quote dumbass pilot stupid behavior. Gee. And then he got on the radio telephone and called the task group commander and chewed him out for letting this to happen. Letting this to have letting uh-huh. this happen. So uh, Savitsky thought a moment, shook his head yes, and he closed his torpedo doors and wheeled a star, uh, wheeled a port, and got back on his easterly heading. My goodness. And um, you're identifying the, the captain. I don't know if we did that before. It's Captain Vitaly Savitsky is the Russian captain? Yes, Vitaly Savitsky, yes. And in your process of talking to him subsequently, I believe, uh, I think your captain said to you something like, do anything to make them happy. <laughs> yeah. And you, he he used a little more colorful language than that. Yeah. Uh, Am I but, allowed to use that language? Uh, yeah, go ahead. This is the Internet. He, he asked the things calm down a bit. Uh, Captain Morgan came up to me and said, Ensign Slaughter, keep that Russian bastard happy. <laughs> and that's what my standing orders were for the next five hours, wow. and, I, and I did so. And, and didn't uh, you end up sending by, an, uh, like, a line over to the um, that's, sub? Uh, you're go, go you're absolutely right. That surprised me because... If you recall, I said earlier, do you require any assistance? And he said, "Net." Uh, when I in my initial uh, communications with him, and then he surprised me by sending a a message this time in plain English, saying, uh, "We have decided that we can use some freshly baked bread and American cigarettes, if you can spare them." Now. I wondered later why he was could possibly send in plain English, and I realized that on every Soviet warship there was a uh, contingent of intelligence uh, personnel, yeah, personnel who knew English, and they studied our tactics by listening to our radio signals, and that's how they were able to evade us uh, by becoming experts at how we operated. Huh. And so they obviously crafted this message because it was so important to get this fresh <laughs> bread and cigarettes. <laughs> so I immediately arranged for a 
a large bundle to be put together for them. It was customary to bake bread at night, by the way, so it came. Uh, the bread was extremely fresh, and so we bundled that up and we shot it over by High Line. Uh, our High Line method was different than the Russian High Lines. They used a uh, sort of like a mon- monkey fist to toss over the first light line and then pulled a heavier line after it. We we used a shotgun, and when we shot the light line over with the shotgun, the uh, Savitsky cleared his conning tower and went into another panic. And then shortly thereafter, he saw the the bundle coming his way, and he uh, he didn't he didn't torpedo us again. Okay, he, well, that's good. Uh, slowed down and became much more friendly, and he smiled and waved his thanks uh, at me uh, after. After they got their bundle, Gary Slaughter is uh, with us. He's author of the book Sea Stories, a memoir of a naval officer. Uh, more with uh, Gary Slaughter in just a moment. I'm Bob Cudmore, and I hope you enjoy this edition of the Historians Podcast. We've been producing these weekly half-hour podcasts since 2014. Guests have included Adirondacks author Larry Gooley, Richard Norton Smith, who uh, wrote a definitive biography of the life of Nelson Rockefeller, and Albany Times Union historian and reporter Paul Grandal. We keep going in large part because of your donations to our GoFundMe campaign that helps to pay for production expenses. When you're online, take a look at our GoFundMe campaign. Please make a donation gofundme.com forward slash historians2016. If you'd rather send a check, please make it out to me, Bob Cudmore. Send it to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Thank you very much, and let's get back to our podcast interview with Gary Slaughter, author of Sea Stories, a story from the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, uh, when Gary Slaughter was serving on board the U.S. destroyer uh, Coney, uh, which had an encounter with a nuclear-armed uh, Russian submarine. Um, th- this fascinating story, I do want to get to some other points. I'd like just to uh, advance uh, things a little bit, uh, Gary. But mm-hmm. So y- y- the Russian captain calms down. He, You follow him or your ship follows him for quite a while on the surface. I gather another ship takes over, but ultimately he escapes the second ship, doesn't That's he? That's right. Uh, he recharged his battery to allow him to submerge and use uh, uh, battery power. And uh, we were relieved of, of the duty by another ship in our squadron. And they took him another few hundred miles forward. And then he submerged and managed to uh, escape. Uh, detecting submarines under the water is not an easy matter, by the way, because they can, they're very clever uh, they can hide under the thermal layers that are in the ocean, and they're almost like uh, completely invisible when they find a good mm. thermal layer to hide under, and that's why we had so much difficulty uh, conducting ASW warfare because we often would lose them because they were clever enough to find a good thermal layer to, to hide under. But he went back to Russia eventually. I mean, yes. what kind they of reaction all... did he get? Well, uh, that's that's a very big part of the story to me at least, uh, these four submarines had been sent down to establish a base of submarines in, in addition to all the other armaments that uh, Khrushchev had armed Cuba with. They were going to establish a submarine base in Muriel Bay, which was about 40 miles west of Havana and only 100 miles from the coast of Florida. 
Uh, and the first submarines that were sent there were these four uh, diesel-electric submarines. And the reason they didn't send nuclear submarines, who probably would have had an easier time of not being detected, is be- because this was shortly after the K-19, the Widowmaker incident uh, they made a movie of, where there was a nuclear reactor uh, breakdown. And so the entire nuclear fleet of the Soviets was put in mothballs until they figured out what was wrong with their nuclear reactors. Mm. So these guys were troublesome. They, they, they had more trouble than a nuclear rea- nuclear submarine would have had because they had to contend with the, the very high temperatures of the water, and they weren't designed for it. And they uh, also had to uh, come to this. By the way, the, the Russians were sort of stubborn in certain ways, and they ordered every ship in the fleet to come to the surface or put up an antenna and listen to transmissions from and make transmissions to headquarters in Moscow at midnight Moscow time. Hmm. Well, midnight Moscow time was 6 p.m. Caribbean time. And so, as a result, these ships were too frightened to come up and get their transmissions, and so uh, that was another reason they didn't know what was going on. They had never received the transmission about the the practice depth charges and the signal from our Gertrude transmission. What was uh, Captain Savitsky uh, punished at all or, or not? Or well, that's, made the that's hero? what I was just about to say. When the four ships arrived back in their home port of Sada Bay, uh, one of the admirals in charge of this operation said it would have been better if they'd gone down with their ships. <laughs> well. They were restricted to their ships for several weeks. They couldn't get off their submarines while extensive... Uh, uh, investigations and hearings were held about what went wrong, and uh, this was no happy homecoming for them. No, and again, subsequently, th- all of this information came out when the material about the Cuban Missile Crisis was declassified. And you've been interviewed for two documentaries, and, and now you give a, a, a lecture on the the kind of the broader scope of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yes, I do. I. Uh, because I mentioned part of the uh, uh, Cuban experience in my uh, Cottonwood series, which is a series of five books I wrote uh, over the course of the last 15 years or so, uh, people have said, Let's, won't you come and talk more about that? And so I've developed a, <laughs> a uh, 50-minute talk on the subject, followed by uh, dinner, and then, uh, then we watched the documentary that the Bedlam Productions made, of uh, the the episode about the uh, B-59. And the Bedlam production uh, is wrapped by some, I mean, it, it's from the Russian point of view, or they, they did more with the Russians than they did with the Americans? Well, they, they, they certainly did quite a bit with us. They came to uh, to Washington, and we flew to Washington, my wife and I, and, and another fellow shipmate who was the anti-submarine warfare officer, a friend of mine on fellowship uh, fellow officer on, on Coney, and we were interviewed extensively uh, in the uh, documentary called The Man Who Saved the World. And uh, we, we, that, that was a good documentary as far as it went, but the, uh, no one in the Bedlam crew knew how to speak Russian, and, didn't, and they hired a local uh, translator that was uh, recommended by the Russians, 
and a lot of the factual information that they put in the documentary was not, in fact, true. And so the Russians told their story in such a way that they they believed they were responsible for saving the world and not us. Right, right. Um, but subsequently, the BBC did uh, documentaries. That yes, you, BBC, uh, I had been talking to a product, product, producer there for several, well, years, I would say, two years perhaps, and she really wanted me to go with BBC, but because I was, you know, like the the King's Speech, I went with Bedlam, no particular reason. I should have gone with them because what they did, they told the other side of the story in a in a documentary that's uh, called The Silent War, and uh, and so they told the real side of the Coney uh, story, which included all that happened after the submarine was on the surface. Uh, not to, not to feel, mm-hmm. uh, not to be smug about it, but I think that the the the, the exchanges I had with Savitsky after the submarine came on the surface might have been more important to uh, averting war than uh, what happened before he came mm-hmm. on the surface, because I believe I managed to calm him down and 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 to the point where he wanted our bread and cigarettes. Right. Uh, Gary Slaughter with us. Uh, His book, his latest book is called Sea Stories, A Memoir of a Naval Officer. Uh, I do want to, uh, we have about three minutes left in the, our podcast. Uh, You uh, alluded to your other uh, books. I mean, you were a naval uh, officer. You had a career in business, but when you're in your 60s, I believe it is, or at age 60, you started writing uh, a kind of fictionalized versions of your growing up in Michigan, the Cottonwood series, right? Yes, that's right. I, my wife Joanne and I had lived in uh, Naples, Florida for a number of years before we moved to Nashville. Uh, I was in the uh, IT consulting business. I helped large corporations organize and manage their uh, IT organizations. And one of my clients was Johnson & Johnson, who wanted me to move here temporarily to help them establish an IT company of their own to help their healthcare clients here in Nashville. Nashville is a great healthcare center. I don't know if you know that or not. Mm-hmm. But anyway, we were here and we fell in love with Nashville and decided to move here. Bought a house that required a lot of re- re- remodeling. And my, I told my daughter I had a lot of time on my hands, and she said, "Dad, why don't you write down some of those stories you used to tell us as <laughs> about growing up in Michigan as a kid?" Well, it was a wonderful place to grow up because on the outskirts of town was a German prisoner of war camp. And every day we saw prisoners of war in army trucks rumbling by going to work at the canning factory in our neighborhood. And that's what stimulated my interest in writing about that. And I wrote a fictionalized version of it. Uh, and I, it was so popular I wrote a, another version of it. Uh, I, I went by the quarters of the war. I wrote Cottonwood Fall. Uh, cottonwood summer, cottonwood fall, cottonwood winter, cottonwood, and so forth. The fi- last five seasons of World War II, and they all involve German prisoners of war in one way or the other. Because I was fascinated with the topic. Mm. Did some of the uh, German prisoners stay in America? No, every last one of them had to be repatriated, and they were generally in pretty bad shape when they were repatriated. In the sense that. They were not allowed to go home for several years. They had to stay in places like England and France and Holland and rebuild the country for the hmm. those those countries. And uh, many of them were uh, 
after they got there, they c- stayed in touch with, the, for example, the farms on which they worked. The farm families took uh, pity on them and sent their families clothing and food and so forth, which they welcomed uh, because Germany was just a terrible mm-hmm. place at that point in time. Okay. Well, and Gary so Slaughter have returned and visited uh, the camps they were incarcerated in and also the families they stayed with. So, as a matter of fact, just personally, I've I've talked to a number of them in my travels because I traveled internationally a lot, and I would be sitting next to a business, a German businessman who wanted me to tell me his story. Gary, I'm sorry, we're just out of time. Uh, Gary Slaughter, author of the Cottonwood series, a work of the works of fiction, but uh, more recently, Sea Stories, a memoir of a naval officer, 1956 to 1967. You've been listening to the Historians Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.